You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 289. I've been trying to squeeze a dollar out of a dime, and I even got a cent. DJ, hustle and flow. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Well, guys, today on the show, we have writer, director extraordinaire, Craig Brewer. And Craig is the director and creator of the films Hustle and Flow, Black Snake Moan, Dolomite Is My Name, Footloose, the remake, and Coming to America, too, just to name a few. Craig has been in the trenches hustling for many, many years. I've loved his work ever since I was at the same Sundance that he was at with Hustle and Flow, where I met Terrence Howard for five seconds before he blew up and before that whole movie blew up. And the stories about how Hustle and Flow got to get made, what happened with John Singleton, uh, the legendary great late John Singleton, uh, and so much more. Such a great conversation that Craig and I had. It is frank, it is raw, and it is entertaining to say the least. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Craig Brewer. I'd like to welcome to the show, Craig Brewer, man. How are you doing, Craig? I'm doing good. Doing good. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. And I appreciate you having a good mic, a beautiful background. I appreciate that, sir. I, <laughs> it's all for you. <laughs> it's all for you. No, you know, I have a, I have one of these um, uh, uh, pandemic purchases, uh, the, this oh. Amazon uh, mic that I'm sure uh, microphone enthusiasts would say is not uh, superior, but uh, it, it it worked for that whole press junket that I had to do for coming to America where I couldn't be in the room with anybody. Right, so right. Uh, it's 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 fine for me. But listen, man, I've been following you. Uh, like I was telling you earlier, man, I was following you since uh, Hustle and Flow days. I was at Sundance. I had a five, I think a 10 or 15 second conversation with Terrence as he was rushing pre-screening uh, of them. Because after that, you couldn't even touch him <laughs> after right. the screening. That's but pre-screening, right. right. I caught him on the street and talked to him for a few seconds. Um, but yeah, I was there with that. And uh, I was what there. What a wild, the, wild oh my, festival we'll talk, that was. We'll, talk, we'll, we'll definitely talk about it. But first question to you, my friend, is why in God's green earth did you decide to go into the film industry? <laughs> you know, it's so funny because um, so not only am I now like I'll be turning 52 at the end of this year, mm-hmm. but my daughter is now 
15. And I think that for the, and, and, and I'm very pleased to say that, um, you know, it's Friday and she holds these, um, screenings with all her friends here in, in my office space, which I, I have like a big, it's kind of like a little mini theater here. And she's showing John Carpenter's, uh, Halloween. And I was so proud that, I mean, she loves the David Gordon Greenway, but she, I'm so proud that she's showing the original to all her friends who haven't seen it. And it made me think back on my, when when I was, you know, probably about like 12 through 14 for my generation was a very unique time because, and I was trying to explain this to my daughter that, you know, there was a time where you couldn't just see movies if you wanted to see them. There was like four channels and, you know, maybe on the weekends you would get like, uh, you know, some Westerns or something like that. But there was this explosion that happened with my father in the 80s of going down to a video store and him going like, oh, my God, OK, you get, um, you know, uh, you're, you're, you get Raiders of the Lost Ark, but I'm going to get Bridge on the River Kwai. And so, yeah, we'd watch Raiders, but then like dad would watch his movie and I could watch it. You know, and so a lot of my love of movies really came from that was the equivalent of me and my dad, like throwing the ball around. You know, I wasn't really that still I'm not athletic or anything like that. And uh, but he loved he loved movies. He loved talking about movies. He loved showing movies to me. And I think that's where it was. It was like at first I wanted to be an archaeologist because I saw Raiders and loved it. Yeah. But then I saw the making of Raiders. Yeah. Uh, Which, and, by the and, way, was one of the few making of videos other than Star Wars that was available about filmmaking right. in the video store times. I mean, because that was rentable. It was, if I remember, it was making Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then the second part was like a stunt the man. Stunts, the stunts yeah. of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Right, Which, right. And, amazing. And, and around the same time, you know, was the making of Thriller, which mm. ultimately yeah. financed Thriller. Like Thriller was one of the biggest music videos of all time. And the way that the label justified it was, like, OK, we'll get in the movie business. We'll make this movie called The Making of Thriller and that that'll offset it. And, and it became a huge kit for them as well. But it got me in the habit as a young person to go like, OK, well, wait a minute. There's this guy named Spielberg and he made Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and then here's this guy, George Lucas, who I know is the guy at the beginning of Star Wars that I would watch. See, up until then, I think especially when I was younger with Star Wars, like it still was that place of fantasy. You just went into a movie theater and these things just appeared. But then with the making of Raiders, I was like, oh, that guy. And then like the making of 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 Thriller was like, oh, Landis, this guy. And that was the beginning of like truly being like, I guess, a, a cinephile where you 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 begin to say, well, who is this filmmaker and what is their next film? And I remember my father and I standing in line knowing that we were going to see Steven Spielberg's new movie called E.T. Like uh, it was up until that. then, it would have just been E.T. But right. to us, we were seeing that guy Steven Spielberg's new movie. And so I think that because I went into theater and I I, I was acting a lot as a kid and writing a lot movies was the the dream it was that thing it's like oh if one day i can maybe make make some movies you know i mean that 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 it, i just didn't think that there would be anything cooler on the planet to do and and because i just didn't have all the means immediately i started just writing theater and writing and directing plays which completely completely informed 
directing movies for me, mm-hmm. um, staging, working with creative people, but also working with people who are probably cranky and different personalities and uh, <laughs> trying to get actors comfortable and all that kind of stuff, I think was because of those early days of theater. But yeah, uh, th- where I tell people all the time, like when you're part of that crew, that that growing family of people who who love movies, um, you know, we take everybody. You know, that's the that's the great thing about about the movie club, you know, is that uh, you can be the popular kid. You can be the, yeah. you know, overweight kid like I was where you just wanted to kind of like be a part of of something, be a part of a big conversation. That's that's awesome. Yeah, it's 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 pretty insane. And I I, I worked at a video store. Uh, so I, I worked. Which one? Do you mind me asking which one? No, I was a mom and pop in, in, in down in South Florida. It was a mom and pop one. Blockbuster had, I was working pre-Blockbuster. So yeah, Blockbuster was just getting up. But I was there for four years, five years. And that's where I got my start. Like I just, I would considerably consume vi- movies and play Nintendo. Consume movies and play yeah. Nintendo. That's all I did. And it was, a. you're right. It was a time that, Hard for people to understand now that weren't growing up at that time, but you you just didn't have access to movies like. Well, and it, I I think the thing that I worry most about with um, the generation today is, I mean, even though there's an argument that not everything is accessible, but because things are so accessible, it's almost blinding. It's almost like it it's is. too it's too there, there's just too many things to see, and yeah. but back in the day. Uh, there, there wasn't a, I mean, yeah, you could like, you, you had your HBOs, you had like, you know, things like that, but, but really like you, you had what was coming out on, on VHS. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Like I, I just, some movies like like blue thunder, you know, oh, and, God. uh, yeah. and, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and then you, and then suddenly you'll get one where you just go like, Oh, this cover's so great. But then you're watching like Roger Corman's humanoids from the deep. And I'm watching like a, a creature explode out of it or, or the, the exterminate. Exter- <laughs> uh, well, that was like the big deal. Like that, that was the equivalent of like, you know, um, no, excuse me, not exterminate reanimator was the, the oh, yeah, movie that, was, yeah. that almost was like, was passed around like porn. It was yeah. this thing that like, oh my God, it's so crazy. Well, like, don't let your parents know that you're watching this. And well, that's faces of death, if you remember that. Oh it, yeah. Well, that's like that that wasn't porn. That was like that was like snuff. How that was the, like, oh my God. Like I hope God hell? isn't watching me watch how this. How did that get five five sequels? <laughs> Like, <laughs> well, it's it's where we are now. I mean, it's just. I mean, I mean, Faces of Death is where. I, I mean, that that's live leak. That's uh, that's 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 basically w- you know when people are going online and they can look at something that they probably shouldn't be looking at. Right. Uh, that was the early days of that. That was like, oh, I'm gonna watch that woman get hit by a train. You know, oh, and God, and it's crazy stuff, man. It's really crazy. And I saw it, it young too. Like it oh, probably wasn't right. It really wasn't right for us. Yeah, I, think I, saw, I think I watched Scarface and then Faces of Death. You had a that's a that's a bang bang. You I just was, you, you took a, a gut punch and then one to the face. I was like what 14, 15 at the time or something like that. It oh, was I, crazy. Yeah, yeah. But you know, but it's interesting though that you're saying that there's so much content in the world today. And and you know, when we were coming up. You know, the movie star was the movie star. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was there was a thing called the movie star. 
and it drew drove everything. And to yeah. a lesser extent today, it still does. But the movie stars that are driving things today are legacy movie stars that have been around for 25 years, like the Leos and the Brad Pitts and the Tom Cruises, you know, and those kind of, but the new generations that I don't think the, I think because there's so much more to watch, it's harder for somebody to become a movie star, even if in, even in a big giant blockbuster kind of thing, like even the girl from Wednesday, which if Wednesday would have hit in the eighties, she would be a household name making Julia Roberts money every time she would walk up. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's interesting because I, I have these debates with myself about that. Like, okay, are we, are we leaving the movie star era, but maybe we're just leaving the movie star era that, that, that I knew where, even though I'll still like, okay, if Tom Cruise, I always feel like if Tom Cruise is going to put out a movie, then I need to go see it. I, I, and, and, and I feel like everybody should do, because I feel like there's few people out there that I think are still have his work ethic where he is saying like, nope, I'm making movies for those people that like actually work for a living and need to go out to see a movie. The they're going out with their kids and, and, and damn it, I'm going to let them know that I'm working my ass off for them. That's, kind of rare that that you have someone who's yeah. like yeah i'm gonna hang off the side of a jumbo did you just you see know, the new thing he like flew his is his motorcycle up in the air and then and you see yeah. the, and you see chris you see the director chris and, just sitting there like uh, uh, is he and, gonna where's the shoot where's the shoot popping <laughs> i'm i'm telling you until until you are a director there's even a there, there's a moment where you see you know uh chris from query like like someone is like like holding them after the set because <laughs> Until you have a stunt, until you do a stunt as a director, oh, you don't. I mean, the the terror that you have that someone is going to get hurt or killed yep. is is so real. And um, because you're it, almost with every movie that you're doing, you're tempting fate for like you're inviting bad things to happen. And then sure. you have someone like Tom Cruise, who's like you know yes he's a he's a professional and he's he's got like the best stunt team around and he and he's pr preparing for these things for months but that's just terrifying and so i think that when audiences see that they know that that they recognize that they go okay well thank you for that but i think the same could be said i think that what we have now is you know you have like yeah you have we are in our we are we are undoubtedly in the superhero I mean, I, yeah. I, there will be a Tashin book one day where we're yes. in this era of of superheroes like this yeah. will be the book that's like, OK, it kind of started here with I, I would say that it really started with Superman, like the original Christopher Reeve, like where sure. where they go. No, we're going to get good actors. Uh, we're going to get like even Academy Award winning actors to be in this. And it's like really in the in the comic book thingy like but they. But even back then with 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 Richard Donner, like there was this sense of like, no, we want to oh, yeah. we want to make a, a, like if the Godfather to is if the Godfather is to uh, mafia gangster movies, then we want to do a Superman or like a, a comic book movie in the same way. And and really, so you're you're and I know it's been said it's like Spider-Man is the star. Right. Who yeah. plays him is going to change. But Spider-Man is the star. But now I've also found that what also is the star and which is kind of cool on a storytelling what uh, uh element is the high concept of it. it is so so you may not have like huge stars in get out 
but everybody was talking about get out. It's mm -hmm. like, and, and I mean, yes, you have Sandra Bullock, but I mean, I remember when bird box hit and like, you're now being hit with everybody going like, Oh my God, did you see bird box? Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of kind of like, you know, just movies back in the day where, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, Terminator was this because Terminator oh, yeah. when it came out was not like that big of a theatrical hit. We discovered it on VHS HBO. because people were like, have you seen this movie about like the, the people are going back in time to kill the mother of the person? There's this who, big muscle bound dude. And like, yeah, it was the but, concept of it that we, it, yeah. it, there was no stars in it that we were going like, Oh my God, I got to go see Michael means new movie. No, it was like this concept is driving it. And I feel that that we're now here with Megan and in horror, you know, I just don't, I, I hope that people will still do it with comedy and, and drama as well. Uh, but, uh, it's, we're, we're in a very unique time right now. No question, man. No question. So let's get, let's go deep a little bit into your past, sir. Um, your first film was poor and hungry, which, yeah. uh, which, how did you get that? Yeah. That little guy made, uh, cause that was your first feature, right? That was the first, first thing you ever did. It was, I, I still feel it's my best actually. Wow. I, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you've done I mean, some good stuff, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But it, it's well, and and the reason why it's my best is because of what it meant to me. You know, my I, I, I had moved all my families from Memphis, but I lived a lot of my life in California. Um, and then I moved back after both my granddads died here in Memphis. And I, I moved into the house that my dad grew up in. And my grandmother was, you know, she had suffered from a stroke. And so I was kind of like helping out with that. But I really wanted to make a movie in the South. and what had happened was I just really failed a lot. Like I, I, it, it, I did what everybody did in the nineties or what we were encouraged to do, which was, you know, spend your credit cards and, and, and make, make that movie. And yeah, I'm glad I did it, but it's still, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was shooting on 16 millimeter and it just, I, I didn't even have the money to, finish it really. And so I was really kind of depressed and I, I was hanging out at this bar called the PNH cafe, which stood for poor and hungry. And I started writing this, uh, movie about car thieves in Memphis. And it was a love story. And I wrote this, I wrote it and I sent it off to my dad and who was always really supportive of me. And, and he read it and he just gave me like this great, you know, Hey, get back in there, you know, don't be afraid of not having money, celebrate the fact that you don't have any money and just get one of these, this is like 1997, 98. So he was mm -hmm. like, get one of these like small digital cameras and then, and then edit it yourself on a, on a, on a computer. And, and I suddenly was inspired and I went out and I, I didn't go to film school or anything, but I, I did have a Barnes and no, I worked at Barnes and Noble and I had a discount there. So I got all the books I could on digital filmmaking and, um, and then I, I came home and, and, and found out that, you know, my guy from my dad's work called and said, uh, your dad was complaining of, uh, chest pains and we rushed him to the hospital and he, he died of a heart attack very unexpectedly. Like we didn't oh, know wow. there was, he, he was, he wasn't really like a, you know, he was a pretty healthy guy. So, but it rocked me a lot. It rocked me that, that, uh, he was 49 oh, and wow. I was, you know, I was like, you know, in, in, in my, in my, I think I was 30 and I, I, it just kind of rocked me on a, on a mortality level, you know, right, that right. Well, I always thought there was time, you know, and I got about 20 grand of inheritance. <laughs>
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And my mother told me you should really make, you should try to make that movie that your oh, dad was talking to you about. And so I went out, I just had like my brother-in-law and, and, and my wife at the time and my sister-in-law, and we all lived in this teeny little crappy house in Memphis. And we were making this movie with everything we had. And I cut it together all myself on, on, a, on Adobe Premiere and learned a lot about filmmaking from that movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, then, then that, you know, that movie not only opened the door to Hollywood for me because it, it, it played the Hollywood Film Festival and it, it won an award. And then I got an agent and the agent asked, well, what do you want to do next? And I was like, well, I made a sequel to Poor and Hungry. <laughs> called hustle and flow and it was going to be it's in the same crime world in memphis but it you know has the same kind of heart that was in my first movie and then stephanie elaine who is the producer of hustle and flow and then john singleton um read the script but then they watched poor and hungry and and john was very much like well this guy's a regional filmmaker he's from you know he's 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 doing a movie about memphis and in memphis and if if this movie poor and hungry just had money behind it and stars, you know, or, or, or at least name actors, you know, it could probably, you know, go somewhere. And, and so when you watch hustle and flow, it's really about me. And I mean, it's a, it's, it, it's us making that first movie in that crappy house, no air conditioning, doing everything we can. But instead of music. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what it is. And from, you know, because I remember when Hustle and Flow came out, I was coming out with my first film that was going through the festival circuit and doing all of that stuff as well. It was 2005. And I mean, when Hustle and Flow hit, because I was at that Sundance and it, the insanity. I mean, this is Sundance. Oh, 05 is a very yep. different Sundance than 2023. Like it's right. It's a, it had more power back then. The market was different. The, there were still DVD sales. There was all sorts of stuff that was happening back then. But I mean, it's one of those, you know, in the nineties, every week there was a new, you know, a John Singleton, uh, a Robert Rodriguez, a Kevin Smith. So in the early two thousands, hustle and flow hit and it was, it was an explosion in the indie space. So yeah. there was a lot of talk about it. And I remember when, cause John, you know, the late great John Singleton, um, when he was doing the rounds, I was, I was like looking like how this Craig guy get this thing made. How did he get this cast? How did John Singleton get involved? And then I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, in one of his interviews, he's like, well, the studio wouldn't give me the money, so I put up the money. He and did. He actually, which is one thing you never do as a filmmaker, is put your own cash in at yeah. that level. And he's like, no, I'm going to write a check because that's how much I believe in this. And and he gave you your shot. It was pretty yeah. remarkable. It's unheard of. It's really unheard of in Hollywood. Oh, it is. I I, I bring it up all the time. Like he, and, and it's interesting you bring that up about just, the culture of Sundance at the time, because, you know, I was reading all those books that were about like the, the, you know, there, there was, a, there was even this one book and I can't remember, but it was kind of like tracking the, the growth of Sundance and then the growth of oh. um, Miramax, I believe at this. And, and then, and it's really interesting because, and this is what I, I have to give myself credit for, for like trying to just read all the books that I could, because I learned a lot about how it worked. And I'll never forget we were in, it was like 3 a.m. in the morning and John is, the bidding war is happening. 
after yeah. that first screening at Hustle and Flow. Oh God, that must have been amazing. <laughs> and I mean, to watch that go down was crazy, but I'll never forget the moment where this guy, uh, Richard Klubeck, who who was um, uh, one of the agents that was negotiating for John Singleton. And he turned to me and he was like, so what's important to you? And I said, well, I only have two requirements. One, that uh, nobody changed the cut. The cut is the cut. Um, that's the, the movie. I'm, I, we won't be changing that. Um, and I want no options. And, and they were like, wow, how do you know about options? And it was because I'd read these books. And what I knew about these books was that like right around the time of like, like late nineties into the two thousands, Harvey Weinstein had figured out a new model where he would buy these movies, but he was kind of buying the filmmaker. So he, he would buy the movie. And then he would make you sign, you would be happy to sign it, but you, you, you would, you would sign basically a negotiated what your next three films for Harvey at a negotiated price that was there or a set price, excuse me. So even if you suddenly were Guillermo del Toro and you became like Guillermo del Toro and you had no movies that Harvey Weinstein wanted to make and you wanted to go to somebody else to make a movie, then Harvey would make a deal for himself to get him out of that contract. And so I, I had read about that and I was like, I don't want that. And, and then, you know, John put his house up for collateral. We made the movie for under 3 million. I mean, it, we made the movie for about a million nine. I remember I shot it in about 23 days. We did like six day weeks here in Memphis. And, um, we even had like, it was called modified low budget scale, which means that if Back you had then. more than in a certain amount, a percentage of, of, of actors or actresses of color, or if they were handicapped, then you, you got to be in a different bracket. And so we really made it for very, very little money. And then John had this big, you know, $16 million deal that he got out of it. And I always tell people, it's like, yeah, but that's what risk rewards you with, you know, cause everybody tells you don't put your own money in these projects. And John put, um, put his house up for it. You know, he joke with me every day. You better make a good movie or my kids aren't are, are, are going to go back to public school, <laughs> <laughs> but I really have to give it to him. Cause it's not only that he took a shot with me, but he really mentored me. I mean, he really was, he knew that I had filmed a movie just all by myself with like a video camera in my hands, but then he would, he would really kind of like come over to me and just go like, we're going to make our day. So if you really had to shoot this next scene with three setups, what would you, you know, what would yeah. be those setups? And, and that, that's when I started to learn how to, how to marshal a day, you know? Right. That's the thing that they don't teach you very often in, in school or, or if you're doing your own indie is like, you can't make your day. If you're like half a quarter page out, third of a page out after day one, after day three, the whole thing is going downhill. You, you won't so make the true. movie. The movie's done. You yep. have to make your day. You have to make your day. You have to make your day. And it's, and it's always compromise, isn't it? Like you show up with like this beautiful shot list of like, I'm going to do these Spielberg shots with some Scorsese and some Coppola and maybe throw a little Hitchcock in there. And at the end of the day is, all right, we're going to do this in a one -er. Uh, We're just going to put it on sticks. Yep. Everyone act five minutes. Yep. Let's go. <laughs> oh, it's so stressful. It's so stressful. And you think, you, and you think we'd learn, you know, you think no, that we'd get no. better at it. You think that it'd eventually <laughs> go away, but it doesn't. It just, I mean, it, I always, I've, I've heard so many stories of like really like accomplished filmmakers that still weep, you know, oh, yeah. on set 
because they just couldn't get that last shot that they think that they needed and it was so crucial you know i always love i always love going on when i'm on a set first day with my first day i used to i I love bringing this like it's stupid shot list like stupid it's like it'll never happen but they don't know me so i'll give it to them and then there's that awkward conversation they're like right before the first shot they're like can i um can I just talk to you about a couple things? The first AD. <laughs> I'm like, we, we discussed the work. I mean, um, yeah. so there's 128 setups here. Um, <laughs> I go, I know they're just there and I'll pick and choose as we go, but they're there just in case. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I, 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 I don't do shot lists. Oh, you don't? I like I I I don't and, and as I, much I, I'm sure I I'm sure I could and should. And and but I I find that you really do have to show up on that day and find out what the day is is bringing you. And yeah. and really all that prep that you did the night before really could go right out the window and you really do sometimes go like, "Oh, I think I am going to have to do this in two shots and what would I have to do in two shots?" Because you're marshalling the day. Uh, and I, I, there's, there's been a few times where, uh, you know, a studio head is saying like, I remember they, they always send someone else. They send some minion to say like, well, you know, the, 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 this studio head was wondering if maybe you can make some shot, you know, if you did your shot list the night before and, and I'll say who suggested that, you know, and they, <laughs> and they get all nervous and everything like that. And, and so, um, I, I, I understand it. I'm a, I'm a very agreeable guy, but I just find that, that uh, unless you're doing like a stunt sequence, you're doing something oh, that yeah. definitely Action. something like yeah. that. But otherwise I kind of like just to get there with the actors and figure out how we're going to do it right then and there. And I would agree with you too. Early in my career, I would be, I had a little bit more gusto in me and I would do all that kind of stuff. But later as I started directing more and more, you just kind of get an instinct for it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You yeah. come on set and you just go, oh yeah, just put it over here. Let's get this over here. Give me a 32 here. Let's, and you just start, you just figure it out on the fly. Yeah. Um, but if there's something sp- special you want, like, you know what? I really want to do this, this kind of fun way. And I'll bring maybe a few shots that I'll talk to the DP prior to it to kind of set it all up for it. But yeah, having, a, I don't do the hundred <laughs> as much anymore because <laughs> it's whenever we know. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, you know, it's going to go right out the window, really. Um, But I do feel that, I mean, I'll tell you when I really felt like I learned how to direct was I had already made, let's see, uh, four features. And and then I started in on Empire, like directing television, like I had done it. I'd done like about three pilots and, and, and one episode of The Shield. But to go into like episode after episode after episode on Empire. I, I, I understood Spielberg better, like, cause I'd read everywhere that like Spielberg really cut his teeth on television, early television. And that's when I felt like I, for the first time I was a director because there was a, there was a sense of me not being important. I mean, I know that sounds a little contradictory, but like, you know, you can't say like, well, I want it this way. They're like, well, okay, have it your way. But you know, if you're not done you know, we're going to get someone in here that'll do it because you have eight days and that's it. And that really, I started thinking differently, like as something as simple as extras, you know, that, which is never simple, but like when I'm on a feature, sometimes I'll be like, well, I got to have 300 extras, obviously for the scene. And then you argue and argue and argue and argue. And it's funny. 
Right. And then you, but in television, there's no discussion. They're like, no, you have 20. You, that, that's, that's what you're getting and you need to figure it out. And so then it starts exercising these different muscles in you. Then you're like, mm-hmm. okay, well, wait a minute. What if we just do this like with a long lens kind of pointing down this hallway and we just pack this hallway with the 20 people and we don't really see that we just have 20 people. And then that's how we'll create a, 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 a cluttered yes. space or, or exactly. you know, and I don't know if I would have felt that way or done that if I just got what I wanted and it just had a, a bunch of people in there. And so it, 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 when I, when I went to do Dolomite is my name after all that, and everybody was so like worried that they're like, man, you're going to be working with Eddie Murphy. And, and are you scared? And, and I said, actually, I'm really not. I, I really feel like empire has prepared me for this moment. And, and I already made a bunch of features, you know? So I, I felt very confident going into that movie. Let me ask you, what was, you know, working with someone like John on Hustle and Flow and, and him mentoring you, what was like the biggest lesson you learned about filmmaking or writing from John? Because, I mean, John's just such a legendary filmmaker. I watched Boys in the Hood, I mean, thousands of times. It was just such a masterpiece of a piece of work. John John said something that I still, I will still hear John in my head on set. Um, and... One thing that he said to me that I really took to heart was, and he punches when he says, um, he's like, shoot the meat, shoot the meat, man. Uh, shoot the scene, make your master, not just some little stupid crawling across like, you know, that, that slow kind of, you see it a lot in TV. It's like, a, it's like a master that's kind of moving a little bit, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. He, he he believed that you needed to make your master like Spielberg does his his oneers. That if and, and I'll never forget what he said. He said you got to shoot the meat. You got to shoot it. You got to shoot it good because you never know what may happen. You may lose half your day because an actor like you know something like may hurt himself or like you know th- thunder comes along and or lightning and and now you've got to shut down. <clears throat> and you want to be able to know that if people turn the lights off on you you've got you've got your scene and that that was yes. a that was a big one for me that was like he's still a, he was still of that he he really loved cinema and and so he if you look at john's movies um from four brothers every, every movie he oh, does yeah. he is a classic filmmaker mm-hmm. now and what i mean by that is that there's a lot of filmmakers today and, and god knows i'm i can be just as guilty of it where it's kind of like you're just kind of shooting heads you do your master you do your medium and then it's just like you're just hoping that the editor kind of like creates the rhythm of it because you're going to cut to that person then you're going to cut to that person cut to that person where john was very much like no how do we how do we stage this within the within the single um where everybody you know you 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 get the story told and people are moving within the frame mm-hmm. that's like john ford that's you know that's that's wells that's 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 wyler that, that that's all those films that he watched and studied and and i still every time i sit with my director of photography i do kind of go like okay i know i'm going to pop in for some singles here and there but w- w- if we had to shoot the meat how would we shoot it and I love the meat, I love the meat yeah. thing. That's great. It's so it's so John. It really is. But uh yeah, I, I think that that was probably the 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 biggest lesson. And then, you know, also to just trust that that 
it's funny because so much of our advice usually comes pre post, right? Right. All the advice that you, everybody wants, like, how do I get a movie made? And then like, how do you direct? Right. But no one ever really gives you advice about the whole editorial process. Right. Mm -hmm. And John, I was just, I remember I saw the first edit of hustle and flow that just the editor, you know, cut. And I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never, that's the, that's the first heartbreak of a filmmaker is when you, you've been, you've been dreaming of your movie, you've been watching dailies, and now you're watching a very rough, raw assemblage of your movie. It doesn't have the music cues that you think it needs to have. It doesn't have the pacing, but worse than that, it's now real. The rubber is hitting the road. It is no longer in fantasy. This is what you have. And now you need to make something out of this. I pulled over on Olympic Boulevard and I sobbed so hard that snot was pouring out of my nose. It was, it was so bad. And then like, and John calls me up. I was like, what's wrong? It's like, I've just, I've just totally messed up this movie, man. I just, you know, and he's like, you just watch the edit assembly. He's like, oh, shut, shut up, man. You know, he's just, you know, get on home, go to sleep. You know, everything's going to be good. You know, get in there and everything. He always kind of just kept me in this perspective that I think when you get older or, or, or when you've made more films, you begin to see like, okay, I'm about to go in. I'm about to, ha- I'm about to watch this cut. I know it's going to drive me insane, mm-hmm. but relax. And that's, that's the other big lesson that he gave me. Yeah. Marty still does that. Marty still, after the first cut, he goes, this is horrible. This is crap. <laughs> He walks out yeah. and he's like, this is garbage. This is absolute garbage. And like, and then Thelma has to bring him back in and it's okay, Marty. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's all that kind of stuff. Now, I always wanted to ask you this question, man. How in God's green earth did you get Black Snake Moan made? Like that is the most insane concept. You know, it just, wow. <laughs> how did, how, who put money up behind that? I know you had a little heat from Hustle and Flow and that probably helped. But man, that's still a pretty risque film. I would like to really give credit where credit is due. And the reason that movie got made was because of the late Brad Gray, who who ran Paramount. Now, Brad, his first order of business at Paramount, this was before he took over at Paramount. It was like what Sundance was like in January and he was taking over like in March, but John was very smart and John had two prints of hustle and flow made. So he had one at Sundance and he had the other one playing simultaneously in, in Brad Gray's private screening room. And knowing full well that he kind of wanted the movie to be a Paramount. Right. <laughs> so before Brad even became official, like on the, on the, on the clock, so to speak, he was watching hustle and flow. And he told everybody like, I think you should, you should try to go buy that movie because, you know, MTV and BET, you know, we could really use the Viacom machine and all that kind of stuff. So then what happened was, is that they made a deal with John, right? And the John deal was for, see, the the, the purchase price of Hustle and Flow was in two categories. It was, they purchased the movie for $9 million, but then they made a deal with John Singleton where he got two, what are called put pictures, which means like kind of no matter what, he can make a movie as long as it's under $3 million. And he had two of those because he brought hustle and flow to Paramount. We both, we brought it to them numerous times and they passed on it and we just wanted $3 million. And now they paid nine. 
for it. And so he was like, hey, I want to make more of these. And later he made one called the Illegal Tender, where he just wanted to have complete control over his movies. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. When they bought that movie and they made that deal with John, they thought that I was a part of it. But remember what I said earlier? No options, right? I didn't want anything on it. So I will never forget this moment where, because I wrote Black Snake Moan before Hustle and Flood was made. Mm -hmm. And while we're flying back to LA from Sundance, I saw two people reading Black Snake Moan. And I thought, oh, this is that heat I've been hearing about. Like, this is that thing that maybe I have a shot there. So John really loved it and Stephanie really loved it and they knew it was crazy and, and they, and, and, and yet they, they also saw what I wanted to do with it. Cause it was very much about like connection and anxiety and there was a heart behind it. It wasn't just like exploitation, even though it, you know, it was kind of like a, a blues fable. Um, but uh, we started meeting with other studios and then we got Sam. And then Brad Gray was like, well, wait a minute. Why is he going off to make a, a movie somewhere else? We just bought Hustle and Flow and it's going to be coming out. So uh, they go, well, you don't have a deal with him. And he's like, oh, so I, I'll never forget going over to his house. I'll never forget this. The, 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 the Ivy, there was an Ivy wall. I was like calling his assistant going like, I think I'm at his house. I just can't see anything. They're like, no, we see you. And this wall of <laughs> Ivy moves. And when it moved, it revealed this just really muscular African-American guy in a black Armani suit with black sunglasses and an earpiece. And he had a Rottweiler that was right next to him. That was just, it was like, it was, it was like you were entering like a, a, a cartel, you know? Uh -huh. And, and I, I come in and Brad comes out and he goes, okay, you want to make this radiator movie? That's what he called it. <laughs> and, I said, awesome. and he goes, you sure you don't want to do something else? I know that like we can, you know, there's all these kind of properties that we have and we can put you on it. And I said to him, I said, well, I've read a lot of books about, about filmmakers in my position. And the way I see it is that I think that the second movie always is kind of a, a risky thing, you know? Um, and uh, I'm pretty confident that I could probably get a job as a director doing you know, franchise stuff or, or, or other stuff later on. But I really feel like I should use this time to get something made that normally wouldn't get made. And he said, I respect that. And he goes, well, I, um, he goes, I don't, how do you put it? I don't bet on races. I bet on horses. And uh, he goes, so we're going to make Black Snake Moan. Is that is that fine? Let's just can, is it can we just say right here that we're going to make it? And I go, if you want to make it, sir, then absolutely. And he made it and he was proud of it. And and people were were uh, telling him he was an idiot for for doing it. Why are you going to do this? No one's going to come see it. And nobody came see it. Um, but I always think about there's that day that Paramount called and said, look, we've got footloose and we really want to do something with it. Do you think you could do it? And I was like, yes, sir. Cause I felt like this was, this was me going like, I, I told you guys I'll, I'll be there for you on something that maybe, you know, uh, may not be about chaining people to bluesman's radiators. And, 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 ah, uh, that's and that's, that's how we, that's how we did it. I'm so proud that it, it, it exists in the world because Thank you. I, I now, 
I now just feel like I don't, I just don't, I mean, I definitely don't see a world where a theatrical release would have been attempted on something like that. I can see like maybe Black Snake Moan being at a streamer or something like that. But even then, it's going to be a little bit wild to get that done because, you know, you would get the kind of studio notes like, oh, what is this? What kind of tone is it? But that movie doesn't get made today. There's no way that movie gets made today. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 definitely no way. No volatile way. you know there's no way that that movie gets made today i'm so and i glad there's certain movies like that that i'm glad they exist um uh, i think tim burton's mars attacks is one of those films for me yeah oh, i'm yeah. like i can't I'm, when i walked out of there i'm like man i don't know what just happened but i i'm glad it exists I, you know i just i'm glad that that movie got made and there's yeah. a handful of those throughout cinema but black snakes moan is one of them it's like there's just no way that gets made today there's just no no amount of heat allows yeah. that film to get made in today's environment. And it was tough in that, you know, 15 oh, years yeah. ago. It well, you tough. know, and, and it came out, it was a, such an interesting year because no one really like the movie business, the movie industry was changing. It came out in 2007 and that was like a real pivotal year for what was happening on a global level. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you were making movies that China had to play and Mm -hmm. South America had to play and even Russia. It's so funny how like, you know, the very people that now are so much in the news right now, 2007 was all about trying to make movies for them. Correct. And, uh, and so, you you know, you had Carnahan's movie, I think smoke and aces was coming out at that time. You had, you had uh, death proof at the same time along, you know, with, uh, with, um, with, uh, with forbidden planet and, um and it, it, it none of us did well in in the audience like none of us like it was a bad it was a bad move for no, I mean, the, Quentin the, and well Joe I, I mean I've I've talked to Joe about smoking aces and he still says that's he makes more money off of smoking aces now than he's made on anything it's so funny that it that that worked out so so here's what's interesting is that the head of Paramount Home Video like called me up and just said we want you to know something about Black Snake Moan and I was like oh, oh yeah. great. Here it comes. Like yeah. Black Snake Moan not only did double our expectations, it not only tripled our expectation, it yep. quadrupled our, our expectations, yep. which means to say, and I go, yeah, people probably don't want to go out to a theater to see this movie, but they're dying to watch it at home. And that's and so I, I've I've always felt good that I've yet to really make anything that like cost a studio money. I've, I've at the very least broke even. <laughs> right. And, exactly. uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm proud that I have that, that movie behind me. <laughs> yeah. And, and in a time where you, you know, it came out in a time when there was still home video, yeah. that, that was, that was a real revenue generator. <clears throat> and now what's so strange, what's so strange is, is now there's that meme of Sam from black snake mode yes, yes. where he's just kind of, yeah blink it like looking kind of like hair. with yeah. the white hair and the and and that gets sent around i remember talking to a class of 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 um my my daughters and i brought that up and they're like oh yeah we you know we use that all the time that's from your movie so so they're just looking at a frame or like a, a series of frames because he's blinking and moving a little bit and and they don't know what it's from but it oh, yeah. has its own life. I mean, the same thing can be said for uh, here in town, you know, our, our Memphis Grizzlies, uh, our, our basketball team, whenever we go out to the playoffs and we're like really in the mix, they start playing that song from Hustle and Flow, Whoop That Trick. And 
20,000 people start chanting whoop that trick. And I found out that like my daughter and all her friends, they didn't know that was from hustle and flow. They just thought that was the thing you said at basketball games. And it's, yeah. that's what's so interesting about, about the generations today. They'll get a clip of something or they'll get a little bit of it, but they don't know that it's got this history that it's connected to. It's, right. it's literally like visual hip hop, you know? Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh yeah, dude. That's, that's remarkable. Now, listen, all the times you've been on set, what is the craziest thing that ever happened to you on set? How did you overcome it as a director? Hmm. On any Let's of your well, what are the ones that I want to talk about? I was at publicly, um, yeah, publicly. What can you say? I, when we when we stop recording, you can tell me the other ones. But for right now, <laughs> I've got two. I can tell you about that. Well, you know, I let's see. What is the craziest thing that's ever happened? Um, oh man, you're stumping me there. I I mean, I I think there's always been, I there there hasn't been something that. Uh, uh, that of course that I can talk about that would be like completely uh, like derailed a production or something like that. It would always be um, uh, like happy accidents or something like that. So I'll tell you just the craziest night I've ever had on set was um, uh, in hustle and flow. Uh, there is a scene at a, it's, it's a, a roller skating rink here in Memphis called the crystal palace. And it was outside and it had this glorious, like, you know, neon sign that what up. And I really wanted to do kind of like a cruising scene where everybody's out there with their cars that I'd sometimes see on the weekend where they're like, you know, they're hopping their, you know, their, their pump, you know, their pump cars and everything like that. And, mm -hmm. and just hundreds of people there. And basically everybody said like, you got to figure out another way to do this because there's no way we can afford all these extras. And there's no way we can get a car like this. And John Singleton was like, absolutely not. So John went on four different radio stations that day. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show and said hey we're making a movie you want to be in my movie then you come out to the crystal palace you bring your ride you bring your car and hundreds of people showed up fast, for that fast scene. and furious style fast and furious style totally fast and furious style for no money like of we course. didn't we didn't we didn't pay for those cars those cars just showed up people just wanted to show off their cars all those extras all those people and as the night started going on and then the weed smoke started like just getting thicker at a certain point, John was getting so excited, but I remember like grabbing John and at a certain point, I, I, I like grabbed him by the shoulders and I was like, am I in South Central right now? He goes, no. I go, where am I? He goes, you're in Memphis. I go, no, you're in Memphis. You're now in my community. And I'm telling you, we got half, half an hour before something pops off right now because it's getting like way too unhinged and people are like, start, I'm seeing like a couple of arguments happening here. And John, we got, we've got one security guard because that's all we could afford. And like, right. we weren't, we weren't, we weren't that big of a movie, but I swear to God, like that was the night that I thought that everything that was just going to explode. And every time I see that shot, it looks like we have so much money. It looks like we, we cast. Yeah, I remember that shot. People. I remember that it was shot. so reckless and so amazing that John just went on all these different radio stations and said, you want to be in the movie? Show up. And I mean, we, we had like people down the block trying to get into the movie and I, I, it, it, it was a scary night but that was like the night that i felt like 
man, I'm, I'm running and gunning as like a filmmaker, you know, it's a, it's, it it was, it was scary, but exciting. So there's another movie you made, um, that I absolutely adored and I didn't even know it was you until the credits rolled. I'm like, Oh my God, Dolomite, Dolomite is, Dolomite is my name. What an amazing, every filmmaker needs to watch that because it is, you just smell the hustle of an independent filmmaker doing things at a time when they just weren't done. And he yeah. controlled his, he controlled his content. He controlled his, his IP. He just, and he was making bank back then. He just figured out the yeah. hustle. He just yeah. figured out the hustle. It was such Rudy a Ray Moore, uh, you know, it, and I gotta <clears throat> say like, it was around this time, you know, when Dolomite, <laughs> I, I remember, I don't, I don't, I don't fault the producers for this, but I remember I was on a location scout for Dolomite is my name and an article came out announcing all the movies that Netflix was doing and we weren't on it. And so I called up the producers and I go, you know, everybody on my crew just read this article about all the movies that Netflix is making right now. And we're not in it. And he, and, 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 you know, the producer said, well, I, I told them not to put us in there yet. And I said, why? And he said, well, I just want to get us filming because I'm, I'm, I'm worried about the fact that you're not African-American and that, and that there's a, and, and, and that there's, um, you know, that the, the climate right now is going to kind of take you to task on that. And I remember getting off the phone and it was the first time I felt bad. I felt Mm. like, because I got to be honest with you, like after hustle and flow, I felt like a lot of the a lot of the movies that I was wanting to make, a lot of the stories I was wanting to tell, uh, Charlie Pride story and 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 other scripts that I wrote had, you know, just like the city I live in, just a, a lot of African American characters. And there I felt like I was I mean, this is back in like 2006 and everything, but I felt like it was a time where I was saying, like, well, these more of these movies should be made and they shouldn't be put in boxes. And I and I felt like I was trying to do this kind of content, but then now, now in the Dolomite is my name era, which is now in like, what was it? Like, uh, what was it? Seven, 17, 70, 17, yeah, 2017. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, yeah. We were, we were in a time now <clears throat> where, you know, you, you had to, you had to have a, you, you, you had to, it, 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 it wasn't enough just to have an African-American cast. It, you needed a, a an African-American uh, voice or a director, which I always want to be an ally for that. But it's it's weird for me it, it, where I live, where I want to tell a story um, that I feel like I have a connection to. Right. Um, so I called Eddie. And I was like, listen, man, I I I there's I'm worried about this because I I, I don't want to. I don't want to feel like I'm taking away a, a, an opportunity for someone to have a voice. And, and Eddie was like, I mean, he's very considerate about it, but he said, well, listen, I feel like I should be able to work with whoever I want to work with. And I said, I understand that. And he goes, but Craig, Rudy Ray Moore is a Southern guy who came from Arkansas, came to Los Angeles and put together a ragtag team of people to make a movie, even though they didn't really know what they were doing. 
And then he had a career that started from that. He goes, can you name me anybody who's done that in their life? <laughs> and I was like, well, other than me? And he goes, yeah, name me another filmmaker that has that story. And I was like, I hear you. And, and, and after that talk, I felt like, well, wait a minute. I know this story. I've lived this story. Sure. And the best thing that I can do is, and this is what John Singleton and this producer, great producer, Dwight Williams, who made uh, Hustle and Flow uh, with us and, and Black Snake, like, it, it, you know, they put to me that, you know, when you make movies, you need to, you need to, they were blunt. They were like, you need to hire black people. You know, you need to put, you need to, you, you need to, um, you know, make opportunities any, anywhere you can. But now we're in an era where now studios have come around to that. Um, and, and, and now the best thing I can say to, you know, people who are not of color, who are making content like that is you've got to listen and you've got to be as responsible as you can. Um, but you got to ask yourself, you got to have that moment where you, you go like, well, should I be telling this? Should I be, should this story be mine? And, and recognize that uh, if, if maybe it shouldn't be. And, and I, I found a, a reason in a way that I needed to, and, and I had the trust of an actor who really wanted to work with me. And so I, I felt, I felt okay with it. You know what? And, and thank you for putting that out there because, you know, I think, it, I think we're, we've overcorrected just a slight bit on some of this stuff because like even in, in the Heights, when that came out and they were just like, oh, it's an Asian director. He's not, he's not, I'm Latino. So I've been, you know, been Latino all my life. Uh, and, and I looked at that. I'm like, great. And I, I'm from New York. I know those streets. I know all of that. And I'm like, is he the best person to tell the story? You know, why, well, why and, and I think that, you know, and another thing on in the Heights that I've had to experience this firsthand with the Latino community in terms of acting is that there have been so few roles Right. Yeah. And, and, and for, 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 and I had done a, a pilot of um, urban cowboy and went uh, for, and it, it, it didn't go, but I said it in the whole Tejano world. Like it was, I mean, it was Mexican and Texan. Right. Mm -hmm. And to go forth and try to cast a, a show um, with a uh, Latino or, mm -hmm. or, or, and, and, and you always, during the time I was, I remember saying like, okay, well, what is the proper way? Because then you, you, you find that, that some people have a problem with Latino, some people, cause you're, you, you Listen, better, man, you I'm, a, I'm Latino, bro. I'm Latino. Well, I, I get you. I know, I, get you. I know, but, I know. but, but, but there was, there was, there was, it was around the time I was doing this pilot, there was this question. And so I would have actors that would come and I'd be like, oh, he's great. And then someone would say like, yeah, but you know, he's not Mexican. Right. He's actually Cuban. And then you're like, oh. Okay, well, maybe that doesn't work. But then you realize, like, okay, then, then, then a a swath of people who normally would not even get an audition for something because there wasn't really roles now just got a lot smaller, right? And I understand. I I totally get representation when people go like, that guy's not Mexican. You know what I mean? If you're from Mexico and you go like, okay, that guy is obviously not for for whatever reason. But in the Heights, the same thing, the, the same criticism was coming around, which is like, well, you know, that's not what. And, and I and I understand it because the world is getting larger and the microphone is getting more specific where a collected voice can say, hey, represent us. Right. But there's realities to it in the in the movie business, especially. 
You know what I mean? And, and so you sometimes can shoot yourself in the foot trying to do, to do right. And I remember when all the criticism was coming out on that, I was like, damn, like, you're really going to take Lin-Manuel, you know, to, to task, you know, right. Right. I mean, like I, 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 George I totally, Washington rap. I know kidding? I totally <laughs> like when poor Rita Moreno, you know, they said, what do you think about that? She was like, let him leave him alone. What's going on? And then they, and then they hopped on her. She had to apologize. So it is a time of sensitivity that I think you still need to listen and you need to understand. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But I, I know what you mean by an overcorrection, but I just think that the world now is just the, the, the is more more microphones are in people's hands to say, this is what I want. And you should listen. We should listen and try to do better. Well, listen, when they did Narcos, you know, um, right. Narcos, the, you know, Pablo was, I think, Brazilian. R- r- right, right. right. So and, you... but, but he is Pablo. He looks like Pablo. He, he did really an amazing does. job. And there's yeah. Colombians travel. And my wife, my wife is Colombian. So when she hears accents, she's like, oh, that's a Mexican. Oh, right. That's, right. that's a Cuban. Because you could yeah. hear the accent slightly, but you and I can't. I couldn't. You know, he's like, oh, but Pablo, he got his Colombian accent down so perfectly. She's like, he's he's at a whole other level. Like, he's really there. And you know what? Come on. There's got to be a balance. There's got to be a balance uh, with all. Well, of this. And like I said, like we're, you know, as art, as artists and and in the and the industry, we're moving forward into new territory. And that's what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Like, I mean, I, I think that we all need to listen. I mean. I, I I remember I can't remember if it was like on uh, where it was where, where I saw this, but it was like some 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 Latino guys learning that Vasquez from Aliens was not Mexican, that right. she was a white Jewish woman uh, actress. And 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 you saw it. They were almost like defensive, like, well, we don't care. It's Vasquez. Like, you don't know what it meant to us to have a Latino character, a character just about. But. But you kind of go like, okay, well, that is, you know, probably the darker, you know, makeup I mean, on an actress. I mean, that, okay, okay, we're older now. Maybe we would make different decisions right now, but don't necessarily like, you know, dog a, a moment in time that was actually meant a lot to a lot of people. You know what I mean? Oh, and absolutely. So, yeah, and they always and they always show the picture of her in Titanic, and you're like, that's right. Vasquez. Like, are you what? Like, how yeah. is that the same the same lady? You know, you can't go back and you know try to. Cancel job. But we're moving forward. We're moving forward. And, the, and, you know? and, and we got to listen. That's that's the big thing. I think that's the big thing is that is that uh, everybody, yeah. I think, sometimes gets like really steeled up and then they want to like fight. And that is the case for diversity. I I've loved Swarm. I don't know if you've watched Swarm uh, on on Amazon Prime, you know, uh, Donald Glover. And please forgive me. I just don't have it in front of me. But uh, uh, the other showrunner um, uh, uh, who she worked on Atlanta. Um, but it's <laughs> it's amazing, gloriously creative. And yet at the same time, there can be criticism for it. Uh, you know, from people saying like, you know, your protagonist is this African-American woman. And why are you why are you not showing their uh, showing a side to her that that humanizes the fact that she's essentially a serial killer, you know? And so we're moving forward constantly uh, in so many different directions. But there's always going to be uh, a complaint or 
or valid, valid criticism. And I think we just all got to take a breath and go like, we're artists. It's we're not doing the like, best we can. We're, 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 yeah, we're doing the best we can. And also it's art, you know, so sometimes it's just going to be messy, you know, and uh, the, the, the thing I just try to do is just try to get a bunch of really good artists that also listen and talk and think. And my job is just to make sure that they're comfortable doing their thing. You know, that's a, that's how I, I justify it as like, can I just be the guy that, that is working in service of, of all these artists. And then sometimes you chain up a, a lady to a radiator and that's okay. <laughs> It, it, it is. It is. As this beautiful poster behind you states. I know. I have yeah. the radiator actually right over here in my. No, you in my, don't. You, yeah, you actually I got do. the radiator. That's just. I do. Amazing. I that's do. amazing. <laughs> um, and one last movie I want to ask you about, man, is Coming to America. I mean, yeah. arguably, in my opinion, the greatest comedy ever made. In my personal, it's, I quote that. I can quote every single line in that movie. It is a masterpiece at every level. Oh, yeah. oh, every yeah. level. So, how did you approach? attempting to make a sequel to a masterpiece like that because it is absolute masterpiece the first one you know it's funny because i'm I'm far enough away from coming to america too that i can kind of like think about the whole experience because it was it was really wild first of all like i i, I did them back to back like i did dolomite as my name went right into coming to america okay and um i remember I remember Eddie asking me to do it. And of course I was like, well, <laughs> how do I not do that? Because I, I mean, I'm such a huge John Landis fan. Oh. I think, I mean, like everything, like, like the blues brothers. And I mean, I, I can quote every line from three amigos to you, but I remember talking to uh, Jody, my, the director of photography on it. And we were, we were, we were, I can't remember where we were, we were in a van, like a, like a locations van. And we had made like 10 episodes of Empire together. So we were, we were close. Right. And, and Jody's black and, and I, I kind of leaned into him and I was like, you know what we're doing, right? We're, we're, we're kind of doing black star Wars. And, uh, he goes, that's exactly what we're doing. And it was like, it was like this moment that we kind of like had to say, and, and, and what we meant by that was coming to America means so much to everybody oh. that, uh, that it's, it's really going to be held to this, this, uh, the standard that's very tricky, uh, to, to navigate with it. And so every time we would come to decisions about coming to America, because it's the first time I've ever actually, I've, I've usually developed movies or like, or, or, or written a movie. And it was the, it was the first time really that I've ever come on to direct something that had been moving for like probably about five years or something like that. And, um, and I remember just thinking like you would talk to people about you know, coming to America's coming out and everybody would say like, well, it's like, is, is, are the, are the barbershop guys going to be in it? Are, you know, is, is, um, you know, Randy Watson going to be in it? Uh, they, they would just constantly come at you with like, well, it better have this, it better have that. And, Absolutely. and you know, and, and, and so you, you realize that you're tied to, uh, people want to have that experience again. They want to see those characters again. And that's when, like, I began to kind of relax a little bit more with the daunting nature of, like, doing a sequel to to something that's so perfect. It's just going like, you know, I'm not here to replace Coming to America. I'm here to, like, make a movie that everybody can come to 
to have some fun seeing these characters again and have a good time. Yeah. And what was so strange about it was I, I just couldn't wait for a theatrical experience of it. Cut to it's a pandemic. <laughs> and now the very age group that would probably lead the ticket sales is my age group. And, and, sure. and, and you're, and, and so, and, yep. and, and we're the ones that are no matter what, not going to a movie theater, you know? And so one day I get a call that Paramount has now sold it to Amazon and Amazon did this enormous campaign for it. Yeah, I mean, huge. it was, there were, there were wrapping airplanes and flying flags all over the world. And so it launched on a Friday and, and I remember getting this call from Amazon saying, you got to get on the phone right now. We're having an emergency meeting. And I was like, Oh damn it. Now here we go. What's wrong. And they get us all on the phone. They said, we had a 30 day goal and we, we achieved it in less than eight hours. <laughs> I uh, mean, viewership, you mean viewership? Yeah. Of course, because everybody wanted to go see that movie. Everybody and what I and what I found out was that like not only were everybody watching it, but then like kind of what Jody and I were talking about on that day is like, and what we really want is that see coming to America is this movie that's just been playing on TV and 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 actually like some and 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 you know mass TV meaning like all the swearing had been taken out of and everything. So you have kids kind of watching coming to America. So you had like three generations of people watching coming to America during a pandemic where they just wanted to kind of like have a good time. So people were having watch parties with the people that they felt comfortable with. And it was a and 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 for one weekend in my life the globe was watching this movie like the entire world was just watching it yeah. and so i felt good about that i felt i felt like okay well we had like a good time with with coming to america and we and we had some good entertainment and we made amazon's you know biggest hit at the at the time and uh um and then just try to like you know keep in mind that there's going to be haters with it like like everything like that's why i meant about like black star wars it's like it was it was this thing that people are so precious with it that um that you're you're you know you're gonna get you're gonna get people kind of hating on things but i just didn't i didn't let any of that affect me or anything and just but had a you, good time we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show but you also had a little bit of experience with that with footloose because when you redid footloose i mean that's a precious 80s movie it's like a it is classic 80s and i remember because i was in the ellen screening room because i was at ellen that day for whatever was with my wife and they're like hey you guys want to watch footloose i'm like cool and so we went off and watched footloose for two hours and you came out and the first words you said were why would anybody want to remake footloose like it's right. perfect like i said the same thing everybody but then you're like well i did this and i did that and it's a little bit different here and there because but i wouldn't want to try to remake footloose here's, you can't. <laughs> here's what's so funny about footloose is um it, it actually got it got a lot of really good reviews and and it it the audience scores were always really really high on it but i understood people going like why would you how dare you remake footloose because i i am a huge fan of the original movie but now here's what's kind of interesting like within the last couple of months <laughs> miles teller yeah. became this <laughs> phenomenon on TikTok with 13-year-old yeah. girls. Of course. I don't know what Miles did 
in, in I, I mean, he's been around for, for a, a minute, you know, but something happened in this TikTok world where every one of my daughter's friends are like, oh my God, Miles Teller. And I was like, are you talking about Miles? And they were like, oh my God, Miles Teller. And they could not get enough of Miles Teller. And then I started kind of like hearing from all my daughter's friends just going like, yeah, you know, dad, no one ever watches the original Footloose. And I was like, well, that's sad because you got to watch the original Footloose. It's the, it's, it's, it's the one it's, I grew up on. It's what it's, sure, it's, sure. it's, it's Kevin Bacon. It's John Lithgow, you know, it's Come Diane on. Weiss, you know, you got to see it. Yeah. They're like, no, but it doesn't have miles in it. It doesn't have, you know, it, it and, and so Footloose is having like this wild Surgeon. renaissance right now. <laughs> and, and the, the soundtrack is being sold and, 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 and it, it goes back to like that Kevin Smith, a uh, uh, bit of advice that I still think is the best bit of advice for every filmmaker, which is every movie has its day. And it may not be the day that the studio wants it to land on. Like he has this great conversation that he always talks about mall rats that like he made clerks and then he made mall rats. And not only did nobody come to see it, but critics always crapped on it and everything. And, but, but then now he, you know, many years later, there's these, kids that come up to him just like oh my god you know you made mall rats and it means so much to me and he's like really because like it was really kind of like a thing of pain with me back in the day and i i, I know that with like black snake moan and i felt it like i wish footloose maybe was like a big big hit it did okay but like you you, you then later like years later so you know something will just kind of like connect all of a again. sudden yeah all of a and, sudden and so i'm i'm very I'm 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 very very happy about uh, about uh, uh, all, all of my daughter's friends. Like they, that's the poster I'm signing. I'm not signing <laughs> Hustle and Flow. I'm signing my remake of Footloose, <laughs> which I find hilarious. <laughs> it's amazing how this world works. Sometimes, my friend, it's really amazing. Now, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Ask all my guests. Sure. Uh, what advice would you give a filmmaker wanting to break into the business today? I mean, I'll tell you the 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 hardest thing um, is, I mean, first and foremost, the the hard thing that we all just struggle with, which is truly like a discipline, like to 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 every day treat it like it's a job, even though no one's paying you. Mm -hmm. um, to how how can I learn more about the business? How can I, uh, you know, I I think you should read trades if it helps you know who to go to. Um, you don't want to pitch all your movies to one place this place may you know today a24 is going to want to hear one pitch and fox searchlight may want to hear something else like you need to know where you're going and and sometimes that means like really being informed reading as much as you can um and writing every day if writing is a part of your world which i think it should be because i think if you really want to break into the business you got to write your way in that's the mm -hmm. that's the leverage that you have um and it also just informs you as a director you 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 learn about storytelling more um at, through writing um uh, it, it, as well as directing um but really like the hard one the really bit of hard advice is um do you really know who you are yet and i think for young filmmakers that's always a little bit mm. nerve-wracking you know mm -hmm. and what i usually do is i'll show them like um you know, Spike Lee's, you know, uh, we cut heads, right. I'll show, uh, um, Sophia Coppola's short film, uh, lick the um, star. Lick the right. Star. And then I'll show following by Christopher Nolan and I'll, 
or or pie from Darren Aronofsky, right? Uh, and just ask questions of like, can you see their later films here? And usually you can, you know, I mean, even that 15 minute short that Sofia Coppola made with these girls in high school where they've got the star on their, you know, that they've drawn on their, their hand and they say, lick the star. And it's like, the girl says, what is that? And she's like, oh, it means kill the rats, you know, backwards. But she had like cool pop and punk music in it. There was, it was fashion forward. You saw the, you saw like, if you turn the lights out on Sofia Coppola after that short, you could go like, oh, she's into fashion. She's into this particular type of music. She's into this dynamic of narrative. And I think that's hard for young people who are hungry to get into the business, to allow themselves the time and the effort to find what those elements in themselves are. You look at an Ari Aster movie and you go like, oh, I think I know this is an Ari Aster movie, right? Mm -hmm. But that's him finding it. You know what I mean? And and I think that that um, the mistake a lot of young people make, and what I mean by young is not necessarily young, but like young in the business trying to get into it, uh, is they want to get in and get paid. You know, they want to get in and get financed. And I just sometimes say like, do you? Because, you know, really the best way to be a filmmaker is to step in crap every once in a while. And that's when you learn and you don't want to be doing that with like a bunch of money hanging over you where this town may say like, Hey, we shouldn't have hired that person. Um, you need to make some crap. And that's the, where the flowers grow out of, you know, and, and that's where you learn like, Oh, okay. You know what? I think I don't really do these wonders that I'm seeing and all these things. Oh, you know what? I think that maybe slow motion isn't my thing. I mean, I know that's cool in that action moment that I saw in like three movies that I wanted to, to copy, but maybe my thing is this thing that I do. And, and I think that that's, that's the, the biggest bit of advice I'd give to somebody because that doesn't require people giving you a bunch of money and you knocking on doors. That may be you, Going like, okay, well, what are the movies that I feel like are me and what is my life experience about? And what are the, what are the stories that I feel that I want to be, that I want to tell and like, kind of like my dad dying. I think that's why, that's why that movie was so important to me is that, is that for the first time I was thinking about, okay, well, what if this is my last movie? Not my first it would be my first and last movie. So what do I want like my son to know about me from this movie? Right. Right. What's the soundtrack of it? What's the look? What, what's the, where's the heart and soul of this movie and where does it land? And, and I think that, that, that is something that people can figure out, uh, uh, without some sort of like a uh, door opening for them into Hollywood. And they'll respect that you more, if you know who you are, once you get into the business. Very much so. Very, very much so. Um, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? That, uh, that, uh, this too shall pass, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's just hard, you know, uh, you, you experience something, uh, and it's, it's harmful to you on that day. And you just think that you're done and you're destroyed. <laughs> it's over. And, and, and you've, you know, it, it, the gig is up. They know you're a fraud, you know, <laughs> and well, that's. 
That's and, a given, isn't it, though? Isn't it? Well, don't we right. always think we're a fraud? I mean, everyone's absolutely. If you're a good we're, artist, you do. We're making make believe. How can we not feel like a fraud? But but I think <laughs> that that um uh you know I'm lucky that like hustle and flow was right when Twitter was happening, but it wasn't at the point of Twitter where people could like crap on you with such virtuosity as it's done today and with anonymity to some extent. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, that, that really like now I'm finding like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to move on to the, onto the next. I, I, I saw, um, uh, a documentary on the, on the stage director, uh, Hal Prince. And, and, and he, he does something that I was like, Oh, I'm doing that, which is on his opening night of his musicals, which is on a Friday. Um, he schedules a breakfast the following Saturday with his collaborators to discuss his next show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I was like, that, that's a Mac move because that, that shows you that you are in the, you are in the flow of being a creator and your worth is not completely based on the success or failure of what you just made. You're in an arc that is going beyond that is going over decades. You're not in an arc that's going over a weekend and whether or not people are going to go see your movie or go see your show. And and I think that that's that's probably the one that as I as I come into my 50s, it's like, you know what, that I, I'm, I'm a little bit better with handling. OK, now I got to I got to deal with judgment and opinions that seem to be everywhere. Oh yeah. Okay. And toughest question of all three of your favorite films of all time. Well, my, I know my favorite, um, which is purple rain. Oh, so good. Uh, purple rain. I mean, I really think that purple rain for me has now surpassed star wars in and raiders in viewing meaning i usually show it to my cast and crew before i i start a picture um i do uh tutorials sometimes on the first eight minutes of purple rain i think the first eight minutes of purple rain is brilliant mm-hmm. um it it's all set to let's go crazy this extended version but you get you really know who your protagonist, you know that there's going to be a love story, you know that Morris Day is going to be a villain, uh, you know how everybody feels and you kind of even know what everybody wants and the music never stops. But but the editing and the and the the visual set, you see, I think, like three tongues within the first minute, like, you, you know, that sex is going to be a part of this. And it's kind of got this interesting look with these very like quick little shots of just people in a frozen state. Like they're not freeze frame, but it's just so creative and inventive. And I know that people go like, Oh, Craig, like the acting and all. And I was like, yeah, but it's kind of larger. It's kind of, it's kind of opera. It is, you know, and, and, and and you got to just kind of like go into it with that opera feel. So if I were like on a desert Island, it would definitely have to be purple rain. But, um, I I still think that Godfather is just it's it's hard to deny that those themes of family and how much you're going to sell your soul um, to, uh, you know, to to um, to to protect your family and to thrive. Uh, th- th- those themes are just so universal, you know, and they and, and, and I showed it to my daughter recently and she loved it. 
And I was like, man, that's just that it's it's funny that this movie still can can move people. And then the the third one is um, John Sayles made a movie called Mate Juan. Yeah, that is just a that perfect uh, uh, movie that yeah. I really try to urge as many people to see and uh, uh, that I can. Uh, and and I, I had a great, great honor to be able to work with uh, James Earl Jones, where I got to tell him how much his character of few clothes meant to me when I was a, a young man. And his mo- he has a great monologue in it that begins with him saying, you shut your mouth, peck of wood. It's, <laughs> yes. it's just the best best delivery of just smacking down some white hayseed that's calling him, you know, that's being a racist and it, it, it's just power. But, and, and it's like, you know, Chris Cooper's like, I think it's his first movie really. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. you know, uh, and, and so many people are in it that are just wonderful, but that, that, those are my three. And I'll tell you when I had John on the show and it was like having a masterclass listening to him talk about story and directing. And he gave some of the best directing advice Oh God, like he would just, just a beautiful little, little, little tweaks, just little nuggets that you just yeah. go, oh, that would be perfect. You know what? I'm doing that next time. Oh, I'm doing that next time. Oh, it's, it's so funny how master. film, film people, and especially film directors, we still just need to collect all those, those little gems. We, we, you know, and, and the one thing that I always try to urge, you know, the, the newer crop of, of cinephiles that are coming up it's like you know you you got to look back you know it's oh, i'm yeah. glad i'm glad that you you love you know i i know that that you think that dark knight is a classic film <laughs> and, a, and, and and i'm not saying it's not roger it's- roger i'm not saying it's not it's i love dark knight but but actually um i'm gonna show you this movie called heat that was you read my mind <laughs> you know and by the, the way heat. There's probably plenty of people that'll be like, okay, but I'm going to now show you this movie, Craig Rafifi, <laughs> like or thief, it, 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 right, yeah, yeah. It, or thief, which is oh so. I just watched that recently, but <laughs> but yeah, it's like it, it's endless how much cinema there is that we have to learn from that's just further back than than necessarily right. what is con- what is now, you know, right. and uh, and and to, I would love to have been in the room with John Sales and learn all that. I mean, no, it's, it's, well, you could watch it at any time. I'll send you a link. It's, it's just a, it's a 90 minute tour de force of him talking about Lone Star, how he did the one in Lone Star. Like, you know, just the scene switch midway. I'm like, dude, John, how'd you do that? And he's like, wow. oh, well, we had this guy and he fell down and he jumped out of this. Cause it's just in the one shot, it just, it's a transition of like, you know, three decades or something like that. And, and I'm like, how'd you do that? And Cause it was low budget. There was no CG. And he's like, Oh yeah, well he did this, and then we had the guy run around, and he did that. I'm like, oh, and I'm not sure if it was John who told me this, but I, I've read, I heard this somewhere. He's like, when you, when you just about the yell cut, hold on for three more seconds. You know what? I <laughs> I learned that from editing my own movie because yeah. you want to, and and it just takes one time for you to learn it, and that is like I wanted to just do a really slow dissolve, but <laughs> I. I noticed that like I had somebody holding an image, uh, holding the thought. And then you could see as the, the, uh, the slow dissolve was happening, you could see them go like, like, like they, you, I called cut too soon. Right. And and you just never know what they'll do too. Sometimes you just a little magic happens. You gotta let, leave that time for the magic. Craig, I could keep talking to you for hours, brother. I appreciate you uh, having this conversation with us and hopefully it helps some young cinephiles coming up uh, behind us. So I truly appreciate you and thank you for all the amazing work you've done and, continue. I can't wait to see what you come up with next, my friend. Oh, thanks so much. It was great. Great to be on with you today.
I want to thank Craig so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge bombs with all of the tribe. Thank you so much, Craig. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 289. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 